You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our October 27th uh, Carbon Removal Newsroom focused on business. Today, I'm glad to have Susan Sue back. She's a partner focused on climate investing at Toba Capital. She also serves as a board member at the Carbon Business Council, some folks we had on last week, and a board advisor to the Environmental Voter Project. Hi, Susan. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be back. Yes, we're happy to have you back on the show. And then Naeem Merchant, who runs Carbon Curve, a consultancy that works with NGOs and startups on scaling up carbon removal solutions. He also publishes The Carbon Curve, a newsletter and podcast about the carbon removal industry and the new carbon economy. Hi, Naeem. Hey, Radhika, and great to have you back, Susan. And then, as always, I'm Radhika Mulgafkar, the head of supply and methodology at Nori. So we're just going to dive in because things, as always, are moving fast on this business side of CDR. Just a few years ago, DAC technology basically was only on the lab bench. This year, the industry raised over a billion dollars in VC funding with over 30 funded startups in existence. Um, And while there are many hurdles still to bring CDR to scale, funding also needs to be diversified and innovated, something we've discussed before on this show. Tech money continues to pour into CDR. Just this week, two large new funding mechanisms for CDR companies have been announced. TerraSet is a new philanthropy that aims to fill the CDR quote unquote funding gap. They're looking to pool about a billion dollars by 2030 to fund startups directly. Early announced funders are Tim Ferriss and segment co-founder Calvin French Owen. In addition, Propeller is a new VC fund that announced its first seed round of $100 million to invest in ocean-based tech. So we're going to talk about both of these announcements with Susan and Naeem, and we'll start with Terraset. Naeem, first question for you. Terraset founder Alex Rotter, I hope I got his name right, said he wants to the organization to act as an independent source of demand. Is this something that we currently need in the CDR ecosystem? Well, you know, I think if they've uh, figured out the legal elements to making a tax advantage donation like this, I I think that's great. But I mean, at at present, demand for CDR far outstrips supply. But I think on the other hand, long-term, we're gonna need to see demand grow substantially. And right now, only a small percentage of philanthropic funding goes to climate in general, and only a small percentage of that goes to carbon removal. So I, I think it's great that it brings online new funding for CDR companies. Um, so yeah, I'd say something like this is needed. Uh, but what I'm curious to see or where I have reservations is you know, because of the tax advantage nature of donations like this, how might that maybe distort the CDR market where at present individuals and companies are kind of used to buying carbon credits or carbon removal credits and not getting any kind of tax benefit from that. So I think this is a good idea. Uh, I'm sure smart people have figured out how to kind of work through the legal elements of being able to make a tax advantage donation that I I guess finds itself, finds its way to a a company at the end of the line. Um, But I I think think it's, when we think about how high net worth individuals are often making uh, purchases of carbon removal credits or, you know, 
they're not currently doing that on a tax advantage basis. So I think there's, I guess there's an open question to see how does this affect the, the, the carbon removal market, especially when supply is so thin and the market is so nascent when something like this comes along. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, uh, it, it is hard for me to fully wrap my mind around the tax advantage status of buying from a corporate. But like you said, Naeem, I'm sure smarter minds than mine have been thinking about this. Um, so Susan, curious from your perspective, because you're so deep into the public or private funding, I mean, do you feel like with all the public and private money that we're hearing announced that we also need a nonprofit mechanism? And why, why a nonprofit mechanism? What do you think they're trying to solve? Yeah, and before I get into that, I just want to, my head's been so stuck on the nonprofit part, like I've just been spinning on that and the cleverness there that I actually overlooked the point that Naeem was trying to make about supply and how this might shake things up in an already limited supply landscape. So I just want to touch on that again, because I think it's such a good, like I hadn't even thought of that myself. So thank you, Naeem. And it's a very, very important point because, um, you know, I think if you read the protocol article, Alex um, says, you know, this is really, I think, is it Alex? I think Alex said it, not um, Shashank, who said, you know, it's really important because we need to actually show that demand is there. I think that's absolutely true. But at the same time, we actually have, um, you know, in, in the overall balance of the marketplace, we probably have an over um, overabundance of demand at this point and, and a dearth of really high quality supply. So I don't think that, um, I think that sounds really good when to say it, and it's very smart to say, but I think the real problem is um, probably more along the lines of, is this going to help spur higher quality supply to, uh, you know, to be motivated to come into the market? And I think that's going to be um, TBD and hopefully fingers crossed that's the, um, that'll be the outcome. And I think that's definitely the goal of something like TerraSet. Now onto the question of the, um, the nonprofit status and is this needed? I think it's not really a question of is it needed or not. Um, I think it's a question of like, and and then if you if you ask is it needed, it's a really important follow-on to say by whom. Um, I don't necessarily think that companies, there's plenty of financing out there, private financing. I don't necessarily know that companies are in great need, the high quality ones that actually stand a chance to make a dent um, in this problem. But I do think that on the um, sort of persons of wealth side of the equation, actually there is a need. And I would say that it's because, um, you know, to go right now to Climeworks or to, I don't know, South Pole or, you know, any of these organizations that let you buy credits, it's actually a team effort. You can't really go as a private individual very easily at, and, and do any sort of purchasing at scale. Um, you would have to have quite a lot of self-confidence. I mean, there are services out there to sort of like let you offset your e-commerce purchase or offset your personal footprint. But if you're sort of like one step above that, and I think of um, the uber wealthy as sort of one, one footprint level above the standard individual and below a corporation, you know, we're talking about people that may be flying on private jets, 
that may be holding really big events with their other um, philanthropic, you know, philanthropist friends, things that, you know, probably the people on this podcast um, are not as familiar with in our day to day. These are sort of bigger footprint things. And I commend people for wanting to um, either offset or even just, you know, not even offset, but make a dent in um, those kind of emissions. But it's not something that you can actually really easily do um, in a retail fashion today. And so I think TerraSet, by making it possible to just sort of, um, you know, bypass a little bit of that admin around it is doing something really smart. And then to get onto the 501c3 uh, nature, I think that's incredibly clever. Um, it's actually quite sly, if I may say so myself, uh, because you know, pretty much all of philanthropy, and this is where I will be getting to the plain speaking version of this podcast, but pretty much all of philanthropy is, um, you know, part uh, meant to do good and part of tax haven. It's not, it wouldn't be philanthropy if it weren't a tax haven. Let's just be honest about that. Um, and so this is the first time that it's been made retail that you can actually, you know, kind of get that tax haven benefit and also support carbon removal. And I think that that is, it's like you read it and you realize, oh my God, aha, Alex, this is genius. This is actually a genius move. And I think it's um, probably going to be really successful. So I do think it's needed in some sense um, to just make it easier for people to participate who aren't corporations, who aren't teams, but who have a larger need than a, you know, average consumer. Um, and I also think that the nonprofit status really, um, really clinches things for this whole movement. So Susan, I want to follow up with you because one thing I think a lot about is the fact that we want to democratize carbon removal. Like we don't want to make it harder for people to enter. We want to make it easier to scale the marketplaces. And so by perpetuating the need for this type of diligence and scientific uh, rigor that's only available maybe to the ultra wealthy or to corporations, could that do more harm than good in the long term? Because we're not finding ways to allow carbon removal to really spread to the, to the masses, if you will. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important consideration. I also think that it's probably not the place of a Terra set to solve for that specific problem. I think what we would look to is, um, you know, right now it is kind of the purview of um, those with really deep pockets, whether they be corporate entities or um, super wealthy individuals. Um, and that's how it starts. And ideally what we see is a proliferation of more of these platforms. You know, they exist out there already. There's um, REN, there's everything that Patch integrates with. Of course, you can go directly to Nori. Um, you can go direct to Pachama. There, there's a number of services already, but they, there isn't anything that's and there are starting to be more and more that are integrated sort of at the point of sale or point of consumption, um, but it's still very, very nascent. And I think that um, that's probably, it, it's, it's actually a really great opportunity for this middle layer um, to, of services to really proliferate. And I think there it's really exciting because it's kind of um, still uh, open field and there's a lot of opportunity for you know, cool businesses to be built and for that problem that you're describing to be solved. Um, I don't think it'll be solved by necessarily by a tariff set uh, because, you know, for 
I don't know, speaking for myself, if I go somewhere and I want to off, you know, do a donation, I mean, I'm no Bill Gates. So my donations are not going to make a considerable dent in my, you know, tax outlay at the end of the year. Um, but for, you know, the average person, that's probably not the thing that's on the top of their mind, right? So I think, you know, there's going to be um, more opportunity for new things to come in and make it easier to do this democratization that you're talking about. But I don't think democratization is going to be like um, uh, a factor of like the tax benefit. It's going to be a factor of access. Like, is it at the point of sale? Can you do it at Ace, Ace Hardware, you know, for example? Um, can you do it really, really easily without having to um, do all the research, just like you said? But again, that's where that those like middle services can really offer value. There's still so much disagreement about how to verify different methods of CDR. I was actually just having this conversation this morning with one of my coworkers and how verification continues to be such a barrier. How would you advise an organization like this as they set up their systems to ensure that their philanthropic dollars are being used effectively and really that carbon is being removed? I don't think that there's a lot that an organization like this can do to set up their systems and ensure philanthropic dollars are used effectively. Um, you know, aside from, you know, ensuring that they're kind of doing the research and and um, able to, you know, justify some of the decisions that are made, I think that there's an element of uncertainty that exists with making any kind of donation, right? So I think there's a few things that need to happen. I think the organization, number one, needs to be upfront about the risks and uncertainties involved in donating into something like this in the first place. I think that's an important responsibility that they, they, they have. And then second, I think whatever this group does in terms of making the decisions around the projects that it supports needs to be as open and transparent about its selection process as possible. And then I'd actually encourage other entities to get involved in assessing the effectiveness of how those dollars are being spent, right? Like TerraSet probably shouldn't do more than be upfront about risk and uncertainty and be as transparent as possible. And then maybe groups like that have been set up like GiveWell or, um, or Giving Green can assess the merits of how TerraSet makes their decisions. And of course, all of that kind of assumes that they're doing it transparently. But I'd actually, I actually think that, that there should be other actors that are involved in ensuring that philanthropic dollars are being used effectively. I don't think TerraSet has much of an incentive to do that other than just being, like I said, upfront about risks and open and transparent. It is to me an interesting place for a nonprofit who had who has to assess the risks and uncertainties of a technology that is so nascent. And, and I, I can't personally think of another area where you see like a nonprofit entering so early into a field, but haven't done a deep thinking, deep thinking about it. But it will be interesting to see how they, how they balance the unknown of the technology and how they think about the risks and uncertainties around it. It's something I think we all struggle with who are in the marketplaces. I wonder, um, yeah. I wonder if like there's um, an interesting analog to something like um, funding novel cancer research or something like that. Like maybe there are like charities that might support research in other areas that's where things are still untested, but you know that money goes towards 
you know, to companies that are advancing research. I, I, I think maybe that's a potential area where there's something that's relatively untested, but, but you know, there's tax advantage ways of, of supporting some of that work. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, okay, last question about TerraSet, and it's to both of you. So I'll start with you, Susan. You know, anybody can donate to TerraSet. It's not just for the ultra wealthy, even though it might feel like that on first blush. So if you were a philanthropist who wanted to support efforts to fight climate change, would this be the mechanism that you would prioritize? Or are there other things that you would consider? Well, um, you know, the thing I always say about this, it's so, it's so hard. You know, I think we could have a whole separate podcast about philanthropy and you'd probably want to invite better qualified guests than myself. I'll just speak for myself. I won't say anything about Naeem's qualifications on this topic, but, um, you know, it's pretty deep. And, you know, just on our last question about how do you make sure that the scientific rigor is there? I mean, how do you guarantee any accountability in philanthropy? Part of philanthropy and part of the big problem with it, one of the challenges, I should say, not problem, um, is just around accountability in any category, whether you're funding community centers, a, a, a library, um, cancer research, a food bank, or carbon removal, it is in many cases very hard to um, quantify end impact. Even if you can say how many meals were served, you actually don't ultimately know um, what dent you made on like this very open-ended problem of hunger in your community, right? Um, and so I would say like, it's interesting that we in the carbon removal community, we are like so hard on ourselves about proving that this, and I, and I get it because there's a like, and this is in the climate movement overall. I feel like we are, are, we're so hard on ourselves because of, um, what is that? What is that, uh, that, that cognitive bias, the Dunning-Kruger effect It's like, um, where people who don't know anything, they tend to overestimate their abilities and people who know a lot about something tend to underestimate their abilities because they know too much. Um, and I think it's a little bit of that going on. But I also think that, um, it, by the way, it's great to have that level of rigor, but I think it's also okay to cut ourselves a break. And then in terms of like actually getting to your question, if is this the right place to, is this the right mechanism to prioritize? What I wanted to say was that a lot of times what we forget is that any act of philanthropy, whether it's at very large scale by somebody super wealthy or at small scale by an average citizen, it is also an emotional act. It's not simply, in fact, it's primarily an emotional act rather than um, you know, a rational decision. And oftentimes, especially when there's a scientific component to it, we believe that we need to really spreadsheet it out and get all the numbers right. But at the end of the day, why do people donate to Stanford so that they can have their name on a building? Um, why do people, uh, you know, want the symphony to continue to exist? Are they actually able to quantify, um, you know, the, the outcomes of those actions? I don't think so. And in capitalism, you know, in our capitalist society, that's sort of how things work with philanthropy. Philanthropy kind of goes hand in hand with that. And this is a much bigger discussion, but I think, you know, would I prioritize this? No, because I personally think that politics, not just policy, but politics are um, the most alarming, most important, most urgent aspect um, of the climate crisis, actually. 
because all of these things that, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. So we need to work on the will part. That's my personal opinion. Um, and that's completely separate from any sort of actual mapping it out. Uh, and I think that to ask anybody that, we need to also consider their own personal sort of like emotional relationship with the problem and, and what previous experience they've had with it. So I'll just leave it at that. I love that answer, Susan. I, you know, I think you're so right. We often forget about the emotional, I think just generally like tie of all of this carbon removal work we do. We aren't doing it just because, because we're trying to make a buck, you know, or donate a buck. But Naeem, your turn, what would you prioritize? I have a similar answer to Susan's. I think, um, you know, at this stage, I, I wouldn't prioritize this. I, I think it's a cool idea, uh, but at the risk of like sounding political, you know, if I wanted to support efforts to fight climate change, we've got midterm elections in a couple of weeks here. Um, and I'm Canadian, so I, I can't actually do this, but if I could, I would actually just donate to candidates who are going to advance a, a political agenda that would build on the progress we've made on climate policy, or at the very least, protect the gains that have been made. Um, so that's what I would do. And, and I'd also say like, if, if that's not the route you'd wanna go, I'd also take a look at a group like Giving Green, uh, whom I've worked with before. And I think they do some pretty comprehensive research and analysis on how to use, how to best use philanthropic dollars to the extent that that's possible to address climate change. So that's, that's one group to look at. Yeah, well, a plug to everybody who might listen to this podcast to go out and vote, because as Naeem said, the midterms are just around the corner and it is going to be a interesting election if you've been following the news. Um, with that, I will pivot to Propeller, which whose name I actually kind of love, um, which is a $100 million fund founded in 2022 that wants to support entrepreneurs looking to address the climate change or climate crisis, excuse me, by advancing ocean carbon removal tech. The former HubSpot CEO, Brian Halligan, is a co-founder, so a big wig there. Susan, you know, before the growing interest in ocean CDR, were ocean-based technologies something that were particularly interesting to VCs and are you surprised by both the size of the commitment and maybe the all of a sudden emergence of oceans uh, as a VC recipient? I'm just really surprised that Brian Halligan is behind this and I think it's awesome. Um, HubSpot is a great company. I've known tons and tons of people to have gone through the ranks at HubSpot, um, including at the VP level. And so I've heard the name Halligan, Halligan, Halligan for years in my career, even before I uh, got into VC. And so when I saw that Brian Halligan was doing this fund, I was actually really surprised. It felt a little bit um, not, not who I expected because I hadn't heard that, his name that much in um, climate circles. And I'm just uh, just extremely pleased. Um, I also think it's really brave to be doing a first fund um, as somebody that comes from SaaS, you know, from software technology, doing a first fund in ocean-based tech, because, um, you know, to get to your question, is this, has this been particularly interesting to VCs? No, it hasn't been. It's been one of the tougher areas, um, and it's been one of the rarer areas to see any investment activity um, and, and then thus, of course, also innovation activity. And some of the reasons for that are because um, it's a bunch of different reasons, right? Who owns the oceans, first of all? Um, who owns the coasts? 
those are the answers to those questions are really complex. And so already you're looking at some regulatory hair um, that a lot of innovators don't love to, um, you know, get, get uh, mixed up with and that also funders don't like to really put their dollars behind. Um, and I think there's also a lot of really nascent science around oceans and what happens when we um, ocean form, I wanna say like terraform or, but, but it's not really terraforming, right? Because it's in the ocean. Um, you know, we don't really necessarily know what happens when we uh, start messing with all of the, you know, kind of ecosystem balance that there is in the ocean, although that's already happening, by the way, unintentionally. Um, so I think this is really, really unique. It's filling a gap that's um, quite large, and it'll be interesting to see um, what sort of innovation activity it um, invites out of the woodwork. I would say to the question about the size of the commitment, look, it's actually a $100 million fund is um, both a lot and it's also not a lot. A name like Brian Halligan should be able to command a $100 million fund in almost any category. I'm a little bit impressed and surprised that it's in ocean-based technology, but it should be able, and I'm sure as a GP, he's probably committing a good amount of the capital himself, and that helps to give LPs confidence. We don't know who all is behind this, but he's surely well-connected to a lot of potential LPs. Um, so you know, of course, for a first time fund, this isn't like your $10 million micro fund. But again, a Brian Halligan would never be doing a $10 million micro fund in any category. So um, I'll just also say that at the end of the day, $100 million is um, awesome as a start. But what we probably would really need to see coming out of this is more um, growth stage dollars. And if those growth stage, stage dollars don't materialize, then you know, that 100 million actually doesn't go too far. Um, it's actually a, a, a tiny drop in the ocean, if I might say so. I mean, I think what you were talking about, particularly around the regulatory piece, I would even expand it a little bit to say, you know, as we were talking about the emotion of philanthropy, the oceans, particularly the coastal part of the oceans, elicit very strong emotional responses from people, both, and they're very protective of it. So, I feel like that's a whole nother level of um, complication that oceans have in a way that maybe other types of technologies don't have. So I'm really curious to see how they navigate all of these different unique challenges for oceans. Um, and then Naeem, you know, what areas of ocean CDR do you see as underfunded and in what are the areas you might want propeller to focus on? in oceans? Yeah, um, that's a big question. Um, you know, I think without getting specific on, you know, different CDR, ocean CDR methods, I personally think it would be really interesting and maybe catalytic to, to invest in areas that make emerging, emerging ocean CDR methods more viable, right? So like what can have a multiplying effect by potentially benefiting a number of ocean CDR startups or companies? So maybe one area, and again, without getting into specific, you know, methods within ocean CDR, but like one area is like companies that are developing technologies for better measurement reporting and verification of ocean CDR methods. 
or um, another area that would be focusing on focusing on um, finding ways to reduce or or at least just monitor the ecological impacts of different ocean CDR methods. I, I think that what's exciting about that is I think there's a potential multiplying effect that can happen um, by by addressing some of those challenges that are not specific to any one ocean CDR method, but I think are going to be necessary to figure out in order for more ocean CDR methods to really, really thrive. So Susan, you know, we just touched on a whole bunch of issues to scaling ocean CDR. So including obviously MRP and regulatory and maybe the social dynamics around it. So what is your instinct on a billion dollar ocean CDR company really coming to fruition? Because as I understand it, that's sort of the benchmark that VCs are looking for. Yeah, and I think, you know, not all VCs are looking for a billion dollar valuation. Um, it depends on your entry price, of course. So that's where I think a seed fund or maybe even earlier, and I'm sure given that um, there isn't as much competition to invest in this category of companies as there is in other categories, there, there might be some um, good cost basis to be had here. Um, I would say that like, it's really tough um, because we're talking about, you know, who's the customer? Um, the customer is probably going to be governments, other really large technology incumbents like a Siemens or something like that. Um, so, you know, it's like few and far between super enterprise plays. Can those become, uh, or, or maybe maritime and shipping companies, can those become um, billion dollar companies? Certainly, but is it going to take a really, really long time? Definitely. Um, is there going to be a lot of technological uncertainty if we're talking about CDR? Absolutely. Is there going to be a lot of um, kind of selling and market-based uncertainty if we're talking about software or you know, business innovations? For sure. It's not going to be easy to sell to Maersk or to Siemens or to Singapore. Um, and so I think there are going to be just a whole host of challenges here, separate from regulatory, social, emotional, technological. There's everything that goes along with um, scaling a company of any kind. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I personally see the billion dollar valuation as, as, you know, very possible, but also very, very hard in this category because of some of those dynamics. But I think that's okay because, um, if you invest at the right price and you're early and de-risked and you um, are able to add value to that investment, it doesn't, not every company, <clears throat> you know, by the way, valuation is just, um, it's just a price on paper. Um, not every company has to hit a billion dollar valuation, so to speak, um, in order to have an impact both on the portfolio and on um, the challenge at hand. So last question for you, Naeem. Um, Propeller is working with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, uh, obviously renowned leader in ocean science. Um, you know, what do you think the Propeller VC team should be watching out for as they invest in companies that will both, you know, 
help CDR grow, but maintain the ocean ecosystems in an environmentally responsible way as some of the least understood um, ecological systems on the planet. Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert on, on ocean ecosystems, but I think this partnership's a really smart move. Um, and I think just more broadly, I, I think they'll, you know, propeller will be need to be mindful about balancing the tensions that are going to exist between, you know, their investments, their portfolio companies who want to kind of prototype and commercialize ideas quickly, and then their research partnership here and the research partners who are going to want to spend a lot more time and focus on on the science. I think one of the risks that we see with Ocean CDR is that there are so many of these potential ecological impact MRV challenges, um, regulatory uncertainty. You know, there's so many questions in this area and like the incentive model is like, how do we, how do we demonstrate we, we get, we can get demand and how do we, um, you know, how do we scale as quickly as possible? And, you know, there's that side of it. And then there's the other side of it that's like, actually, we have a lot of research questions that we still need to figure out before we start, I don't know, selling carbon removal credits. But, you know, both both sides of this are important, right? Figuring out how to, how to kind of commercialize your business idea is kind of the point of starting a company. But the partnership with these, this, this research institute is a, a really, really smart move, but I think it's going to be really difficult to find that balance um, to, to get that partnership working in a way that is both environmentally responsible, but also, you know, a financially lucrative um, arrangement for, for Propeller. So I think that will be tricky. It seems like Propeller is just going to have to be a very patient VC because there are so many unanswered questions and to dive into this space will require a certain amount of willingness to hold for the long-term, I guess. Um, it's what I kind of hear both of you saying in your answers. Well, I wanna turn it over to good news, which is Susan. So Susan, let us know your good news. I just had a baby. Yay. So we're all officially parents here on uh, the um, carbon removal newsroom. And um, things are going great. It's been, we're almost at the two month mark. So I can't believe it. We were just chatting about how unbelievably nostalgic I feel and how fast things go, go um, by you. But it's just been um, an absolute amazing whirlwind. And, you know, of course, we're just totally in love and um, doing surprisingly well. The things that you can kind of cope with that you didn't know you were capable of before, it just really... Um, is impressive, you know, that our ability to operate on, on patchy sleep, amazing. Um, so yeah, it's been wonderful. And I look forward to being back on the pod on a regular basis. Um, you might hear an occasional um, yell uh, in the background. We didn't have any today. I'm actually really surprised, but um, don't expect that to always be the case. Um, yeah, and it's great to be back. Congratulations, Susan. You look amazing. You look, you're just glowing. So I'm so happy that it's been a wonderful experience for you. And hey, if any of the parents of young children have yelping in the background, I just think it makes us all smile and feel good. So congrats. Congrats, Susan. Thank you. 
And with that, that is the end of Carbon Removal Newsroom Business Edition. And thank you all for listening. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.